Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and you're welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. My guest today is a man who has walked off the political stage in his prime, a road less travelled, you might say, in the world of politics. Jim Daly was first elected to the Dáil in 2011 as a Fine Gael TD for the constituency of Cork Southwest and re-elected in 2016. The following year, he was appointed Junior Minister for Mental Health and Elder People. That was after he was one of the very few Munster TDs to back Leo Varadkar for the leadership of the party in Mr Varadkar's contest with Simon Coveney. Now, I think it's fair to say that Jim's career was on the up, but then last September he announced that he would not be contesting his seat in the forthcoming general election. He's 47 and he's been involved in electoral politics for 16 years, the first seven of those as a member of Cork County Council. Since the election, he has remained on as a junior minister, I would say, probably much uh, against what he thought might be the situation. But then we all thought that because nobody ever predicted that it would take us, what, well over 100 days before we might get a new government in place. That situation may change this weekend. One way or the other, it now appears that Jim Daly is coming to the end of his career in national politics. Jim, you're welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mick. Jim, as the waiter said to George Best, where did it all go wrong? Why, why, why in your prime, well, certainly by, by Irish standards, did you um, opt to, to, to leave the stage? Yeah, uh, thanks, Mick, and thanks for the invitation. I, I thought I was yesterday's news and I uh, thought I was gone, but I uh, was delighted to get your call and see that I had some bit of relevance. Uh, I suppose, Mick, look, it was a very personal decision for me. Uh, it was something that I had been tying with for quite some time was, you know, how long I wanted to stay in politics. I had been a successful businessman in my 20s. I had a pub, a restaurant down in West Cork and Ross Carberry. I had a bed and breakfast. Uh, I was a teacher as well, and I'd become a school principal. So I always wanted to just try politics to see would I enjoy it, what it was like, and I loved it. I found it very, very addictive, found it very, very compulsive, found it all-consuming. Uh, I spent 17 years in politics, and uh, to be fair... I loved every one of them. You know, there's no way I could say if one of my own kids said to me tomorrow, Dad, I'd like to go into politics, I'd find it very hard to talk them out of it. But I think there comes a stage in all of our lives where we question, you know, is this what you want to keep doing? And when I mentioned my kids there, I have five children. Uh, the youngest boy was two weeks old when I went into politics. He's now a towering, almost 17-year-old. Uh, in an, a week or two, he'd be 17. And, you know, you're just looking at him and saying, my God, where did life go? Is it really? And it's tough and it's challenging when it's been Dublin-based. I think what I found hardest about it, Mick, was really uh, I didn't mind being in Dublin three or four days a week, uh, particularly as a Minister of State with additional duties and responsibilities to other counties. Uh, I never minded being away from home three, four nights a week. It wasn't the end of the world for me. But what really got me was when I got back home, eventually, again, a four, four and a half hour journey to get home, 
when I eventually got home, the following morning I got up again, you know, I might get home at midnight and you got up the following morning and you were on the road again locally because you had to keep up your profile locally. You had to be present at a lot of events. You had to meet a lot of constituents. You had to do clinics. You had to go to party meetings. All of that, you had to keep all those machines idle. And it just became too much for me eventually. And I said, you know what, there has to be more to life than this. I might be wrong. I don't know. But that was how I felt. Yeah, Jim, you mentioned there, and I've heard this from other politicians as well, uh, the addictive nature of it, the the moth drawn to the flame kind of thing. And that presumably is is the difficult aspect of walking away. Why is it addictive or what about it is addictive? Yeah, I think uh, we are a contradiction in terms. We're a very unique species. I've never heard anybody really delve too deep into what drives a politician and what makes a politician. We are very contradictory by our nature. We're very confident and out there, yet we're very needy and very, you know, dependent on people. We're very, um, you know, we're everybody's friend, as um, somebody kind one time, I think, was it Bertie Hearn said, or was it Indy Kinney, one of them said about the other was a sociable loner. That contradictory nature does exist in politics, and in, in particularly in politicians, and most politicians, we have loads and loads of friends, but it's very hard to maintain any real friendships, and, you know, to have what, uh, let's say, a normal person might call as a friendship. So I think politics becomes all-consuming. It's... Um, it's relentless. Uh, the mobile phone has made it particularly relentless. I think of my predecessors, Jim O'Keefe and PJ Sheehan, uh, who were in the politics only 10 years ago, but neither of them had you know, widely available public mobile phone numbers. But the mobile phone, the Twitter feed, the Facebook feed, there's WhatsApp, the text messaging, the emails, they continue to come 17, 18 hours of a day. They're active and live. And it just makes it very compulsive. And you're, you're in a very, become very reactionary and very beholden to the job. And it's very, very hard to switch off. Yeah, and just as you say it there, it occurs to me, I wonder how what you think of this um, amateur analysis on my part, that there's two elements effectively. There's the element of being there as a representative. You're, you're in the doll, the seat of power. There is that whole area of being the centre of, uh, of attention, the centre of what's going on, the centre of the possibility, and we can talk about how much of it is actually the case, of being able to be a, a positive change for society and people in general that's one element but the other is the other then I wonder that idea that even though it is a pain a lot of the time in in your constituency the representative nature of it is there something in it the fact that people come to you they look to you they want something from you they want you to do something personal for them is there something to that in terms of uh, being that person that can help people effectively yeah there is there's a phenomenal kick is, is probably what you'd say, Mick, in that, in being able to help people. And I will honestly say that the last thing I did for somebody, and the last, you know, it was only in the past week, that I was able to help somebody out, get something over the line for somebody that they just couldn't do on their own. And it wasn't that I was able to, you know, manipulate any situation or anything like that. I just know my way around. I know how to get things done. I know who to go to. I know to, the system much better. And, you know, people find it difficult to navigate systems. It's not a Gambian state where you need to get onto a politician or else you won't get what you're entitled to. Of course you'll get a medical card without ever getting onto a politician. But if you're having difficulty getting onto a politician who knows their way around the system and who is willing to put in the effort, can actually help you navigate it and get that, you know, medical card for you without any, as I say, element of Gambianism. But I'll have to say I found that as rewarding in the past week doing something for someone as I did the very first week I went into politics all those years ago. That It never leaves it. That ability to ring up somebody or, you know, when you get a card, a thank you card from some lady who's in her mid-80s 
and the medical card. I remember a lady who had been in hospital. She'd had major surgery in her mid-80s and the medical card people were writing out to her to say, you know, so they assumed that when she wasn't responding, she was no longer with us. They cancelled the medical card. So that was like a debt, a, a huge trauma to that lady. I remember getting involved, you know, getting the card back for her without she having to go through too much paperwork and so on. And so the gratitude that that lady had for what I did and sent me a mass card at the time, you know, I'll never, ever forget that. So that is very addictive. That is, there's no doubt about it. But the other side of that, Jim, is that, like, for example, you talk about, you say it's not Gambinas when I accept that totally. But the idea, as you said yourself, in these instances, people like that are entitled to the medical card. They're entitled to, to what they are within the state. But surely the problem then is that the state apparatus reacts to politicians in a way that it doesn't directly to citizens. And is that not at the core of a lot of the problems in that regard? Does that not reduce the TD's function to being a type of a quasi-social worker when perhaps they could be concentrating more on the bigger issues that affect wider society rather than the individual stuff? I think the system works quite well on that front, Mick, because, look, I take your point that if the system reacts positively to politicians, and it does, it's easier for a politician to get to talk to you know, a civil servant above behind a desk in Sligo in the pensions office or wherever you're talking about or the medical card office. But having said that, uh, having a politician involved, I mean, I've had many cases where I haven't been able to be successful with somebody's application. And even if I'm a minister inside the Department of Health, I couldn't, for want of a better word, swing a medical card for anybody who's not entitled to it by the system. But look, systems by their nature are never going to be perfect. And if you have to design a system to be as fair as it can to every citizen, there is always going to be quirks in that system. There's always going to be nuances. There's always going to be systems failures. And some people will not get what they're absolutely entitled to, no matter how far you go to. And some people will take advantage of the system, no matter how strict you make it. And that'll make it more stricter. So look, systems by their nature will always need... I think that human effect and somebody to be able to make a human representation to somebody at the other end, whether it's a TD or whether it's a councillor, whether it's a person in, in, you know, one of the welfare offices or whoever does it, uh, citizens information, one of those. But you'll probably always need to have the human input. You won't have to design the perfect system. Would the life of a politician, particularly someone like yourself, who's so far from the seat of power in Leinster House, Jim, would it be easier if there was less of having to make representations on behalf of people and more emphasis on concentrating on the legislative element of things? Yes, it's the short answer, but there is great learning and grounding in the other side of it. You know, I think you have to be held close to the people that elected you to keep your grounded, to understand what are the issues, to appreciate what needs to be done and to be able to articulate the difficulties they're having. I think, you know, so it's it's too easy to say that all of politicians should just be national parliamentarians and this, you know, stuff that they do locally is a joke. I think that would remove an awful lot of what makes politics work well in Ireland. So I'm not sure that's the solution either, to be honest. What about the PRSTV system to the extent that, again, the competition within constituencies and within parties within constituencies, even that you have that, that personal touch, everybody has to be giving the impression of doing it, if not actually doing it, because of that competition. Is that a healthy thing or would there be a better way of doing things in that regard? Yeah, I suppose like somebody said, democracy is the least best form that there is available to us. And I suppose that's what's true, really. You know, I mean, it, like, tell me a better system. It has loads of flaws. Uh, so the PRSTV system, of course, is challenging and all of that. Um, I always found it fascinating. Though. And look, it has lots of good points to it as well. 
you know, there are things that could be changed and there are things that could be improved. I mean, a big, a big challenge for, say, if you look at Cork Southwest, one of the furthest away constituencies, uh, and if you look at the three TDs there at the moment, I don't think any of those TDs are rearing primary school children at this point in their life. You know, and it certainly will make life an awful lot easier for those three representatives. I'm not sure you will have an awful lot of people who are rearing primary school children, primary school age children, looking for the job, you know, from the very heart of West Cork, because it's a very, very challenging job. Uh, I, you know, I've racked my brain lots of times trying to see what concrete steps could be taken to improve it and to make sure that people don't leave early or walk off the pitch too early and or anything like that. And I suppose, you know, maybe the whole system of going to Dublin three days every week and then, you know, maybe, I don't know, could the legislative side of it be done a week on, week off would be a huge benefit to the likes of me. So if you were in Dublin for five days one week and you were local for the five days the next week, you'd still probably get as much legislative timetabling done into the Dublin. And the second week you'd be local for those five days. Like I, I remember being so, I was struck by, I was at an event one time and one of my fellow ministerial colleagues was late. And I said to somebody, is, is the other minister not here yet? And they said, oh, um, the colleague minister said, oh, minister, he's, he's dropping his kids to school. I think he's on his way. You know, the luxury of being able to drop your kids to school before going to work, you know, for a Dublin-based minister, RTD, or Mead-based, or Kildare-based, or, you know, so many counties like that, or being able to go home to your own bed and stay in your own bed. Whereas uh, this whole thing of three nights in Dublin, every single week while the doll is in session, it could be probably put to five nights one week, and that may be a solution, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose the other thing that would arise there, Jim, is in, in terms of the, the the political will, that phrase is used for so much, but in terms of changing politics itself, because um, you could suggest that it's anti-rural to the extent that, for example, somebody in Offaly or in the Midlands or Wexford or somewhere like that, or even North Cork, I'm going to put it that way, their burden in that regard is less than the likes of yourself, people from South Kerry, from... Are from Mayo, Donegal, you know. So I mean, I suppose that's the issue. There is that there's not perhaps critical mass in terms of of their representation in the doll where people would want to push to change it. Yeah, yeah, there is an element of that as well. I mean, the, like people from the the commuter belt areas and the counties that can access Dublin within an hour, an hour and a half have a massive, massive, massive advantage over... I mean, even from an electoral point of view, they can be back in their constituencies every evening and at events and, you know, whether it is funerals, whether you regard them or not, or whatever event it is you want wish to be at. Whereas if you're someone like me and you could be up to four and a half hours from your hometown on any given day, you're missing out on so many events that go on. So there is a, there is definitely a major, dis, I suppose, um, handicap, for want of a better word, for a person uh, who's starting out from uh, a geographically remote area. And you mentioned as a parent of school-going children, I mean, I, <laughs> I'd have to suggest that if you go back 20, 30, 40 and more years, you, you, you very well could have had a lot of uh, fathers of school-going children who simply put up with it because that was the nature of society. But thankfully, people will say, in many ways, we've changed in that regard. But in that vein, Jim, is it... Even more difficult for women, because irrespective of, of attempts at equality and that there's no doubt that you certainly hear women talking about it and that that element of things that they, they, they some women certainly seem to have more guilt about it. I mean, bad and all as it is for you, would you say the same situation makes it even more difficult for women to come into politics if they're not handy enough for getting to Dublin? Yeah, I mean... 
look, it's all about a personal choice and that begins and ends even where my, my decision to leave politics was very personal to me. I certainly don't intend to bring the system down around me on my way out and kick every door and say, you know, that this is wrong and that's wrong and I can't stay in it because of that. It was personal to me and I made a lifestyle choice that I would prefer to be at home with my children and see them for what's left of their rearing you know, on a more hands-on basis. And the same would be for women. And as you say, some women would find it harder to be removed from that than maybe some fathers, not in all cases. Uh, there could be a situation where you have, you know, a woman who's delighted to go to Dublin and you have a father who's very happy to take on the chores. You know, so there is no black and white in it. Uh, and I don't think it's gender specific, but I think it's highly personal. And that's what I would say about my decision to leave was a choice I made. And I know when I made that choice, I have no doubt, I know for a fact I challenged many of my colleagues in, in a good way, to reevaluate what they're doing. I didn't intend to. They just told me afterwards that, God, Jim, when I saw your decision, I saw what you were doing. I was thinking about my own situation and how tough it is and all of that. That wasn't my intention or my place to do that. But, you know, it's just something I chose to do. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying anybody else should follow me or that politics should be changed to allow me get back into it. I loved what I did while I did it. I really got to see how things worked and I think made a, you know, a contribution that I'm very happy with um, but made a personal decision that I was going to put family first. When people leave politics to a large extent, unless they're, they're, they're heading towards the um, the back end of their working lives, effectively, Jim, it tends to be that they lose an election. And uh, we, we've often heard politicians speak about the shock and the sense afterwards that, you know, even though you have more time to yourself, the, that pressure cooker, you're out of it, the, the, you're in a, a, a chamber readjusting as such. Has that happened to you, first of all, in terms of leaving of your own volition? But secondly, has it hit yet in terms of the way things have turned out with the government and that you're still effectively in office? Yeah, it's it's difficult really to, I mean, I suppose the lockdown was really what crystallised more than anything, you know, that gave more pause for thought and space than I would have imagined. Uh, I still remained on as Minister of State, you still have responsibilities in that role. So it hasn't given me, you know, I, I'll be very honest with you, I'm, I'm genuinely very excited about the weekend coming ahead. And I think you will hear a loud screech down from West Cork from the <laughs> side if the government gets it together and is formed and at this stage I probably say and I'm released of my duties you know that uh, while I loved being there and enjoyed it and found it fascinating at this stage you know it's over 12 months since I made my decision to leave politics I'm ready to leave so I haven't got um, but certainly I think from once I made the announcement in September I obviously had made the decision back in kind of May and June really I'd been tied with it for a long while but made it finally in my head in May or June and said I'd sit in it again over the summer but once I'd made the decision, there was an enormous freedom at that stage, uh, an, an, an incredible freedom. Uh, I remember still, I tell the story so often about the, the, the day I came back to West Cork after, I think I had to stay overnight in Dublin after making my announcement and eventually got back to Clonakilty and uh, went into Dunn stores and there was a freedom about me and there was a, a relief on my face and on whatever. And I, some gentleman just walked into me in the aisle and said, uh, they'll be all mad to vote for you now. And I just <laughs> a very, you know, funny, but a very insightful take. And that's probably what, that's the release you have, that you're not needy, you're not desperately needing to say hello to everybody and stop talking to everybody and make sure you don't ignore anybody and wave at every car passing. And, you know, all of those things that you're continuously on high alert as a politician uh, become irrelevant uh, to a degree. So that's yeah, where the relief, the relief comes in. I can well imagine. Um, I just looking back there, Jim, and I actually recall it when I was just looking up and before I had you on the podcast. You were on one night with uh, my old pal Vincent Brown, and um, I suppose in some ways you were fortunate in in terms of that you were spotted on the TV that night. 
your your GP spotted something? Yeah, yeah. The good memories that I have from the good old days with Vincent Brown. Uh, yeah, my GP did spot. Uh, basically, I was on the show and uh, Dan Burke was the local GP and Ross Carvey. I was out at an event at a G event and I was chatting to Dan and he said, oh, I saw you on Vincent Brown on Tuesday night and you were well able, or, you know, whatever you were giving Vincent or whatever Vincent was giving to you. And, and then he said, just as I did, by the way, he said, I spotted something in your face there. I was looking at you on the television. So he said, I'd like to have a better look at that when you call up to me. So I did what most, a lot of men in particular do. I left it slide another six weeks, I'm sure, before I went up to him and I went up to him and uh, yeah, he referred me on. It was cancerous that had to be removed. And uh, I remember the, the blaring headlines at the time from some of the tabloid papers saying, you know, Vincent Brown saved my life back in the <laughs> so, But I'll tell you another story about, <clears throat> about the Brown, Vincent Brown was just on a lighter note. Um, and, you know, they were very diff- difficult times to be in politics, obviously, and as a Fine Gael backbench TD in 2011-12, post the crash and all that. But on a lighter note, uh, I had small children at home at the time, and when I came home after my first appearance on Vincent Brown, I was very excited and very, very anxious to, to watch myself back on television. So when I came back, I said to the kids were really excited as well, and they were like ages of 5, 6, 7, and 10 or 11 or whatever. And they were saying, God, Daddy, yeah, they were really excited to sit down and watch me and Vincent Brown. So next day, the music started playing, and I saw all their faces dropping. And I said, what, what? Oh, Dad, we thought it was Mrs. Brown you were going to be on. <laughs> <laughs> it was but yeah, no, I have very good memories of, of my times on, on Vincent Brown. Tell me, Jim, the other thing, um, in terms of, you hear it from some politicians now that it's more difficult, that social media perhaps, uh, maybe the 24-hour news cycle, all that sort of thing. In your experience over the course of your career, um, has it got more difficult or would the current environment be any type of a situation where people would be discouraged from entering politics? Yeah, I saw um, more so with my colleagues than myself, to be honest, the whole online space. I was never a huge victim of the online or maybe it didn't get to me or I didn't see it or whatever. I, I don't know. Uh, online was never massively an issue for me, but I know some of my colleagues found it really, really, really tough. I, I think what I found toughest is if you look at the amount of avenues of getting to Jim Daly today, like I can remember some of the TDs on go, a Sunday at lunchtime was the time that I hear my father saying would be a great time to ring the local TD. You'd get him at home on the landline. Nobody had his mobile and, and that's not that long ago, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. You get him at home on a Sunday morning or Sunday lunchtime or whatever. Whereas if you think of today, if you want to get at, get to Jim Daly, you can de- put him on Twitter, on Facebook, on WhatsApp, on text, on email. There's a landline in the home. There's a landline in your constituency office. There's a landline in your Dublin office. It, it does mail ordinary regular posts. There, you know, there's so many different ways of, of people getting to Instagram or whatever. And all of these things are beeping continuously and, conti- you know, so it is relentless. I think the, the amount of avenues of communication to somebody in public life is very, very difficult to switch off. Yeah, that's like the, the, the story. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but about the, because uh, I can't remember what, what specific TD might have related it, about the TD who at one stage he, he told the story about a constituent contacted him on Christmas Day and arrived at his home, but it turned out to be a medical issue he had rather than anything the politician could do for him. And he suggested that this person go to uh, his GP. And the man replied, sure, I couldn't do that to the man on Christmas Day. <laughs> no compunction about coming to the TD on Christmas Day, though. I mean, that that, that, that sums up some of it, I think. Um, have you figured out what you're going to do in the future, Jim? Genuinely don't, Mick, yeah. I don't think anybody believes it when I say that, because I, I have no idea. It's very difficult while you're still a minister. You can't really 
kind of go around looking too much or whatever. Um, and I haven't seen anything that would really, really float my boat. Or So I genuinely, hand in my heart, have no idea. And I think that's part of maybe the excitement and the nervousness of the next phase. But that's me. I was always a kind of a take a chance. You know, I, I did this to get into politics. I was a principal of a school. And as soon as I was elected to the council, I resigned my position. I didn't take a career break. I didn't, you know, do anything like that. And that paid off. That gamble paid off. And I think this gamble hopefully will too. So I'm looking forward to New Horizons. I mean, genuinely am. I uh, would love to. There's lots of things I would love to do, but uh, have no idea. I'd be entrepreneurial by, by nature. What kind of things would you love to do? Um, I think maybe at this hour of my life, I'd more like to look at sitting on boards and contributing to entrepreneurship that way, you know, contributing as opposed to, you know, I'm heading into my mid to late 40s at this stage. So the idea of taking on massive loans and gambles again and all of that. But I would love to be a party to business and enterprise and entrepreneurship, maybe medical entrepreneurship, particularly with a particular interest in there from the, the last three years. And just contributing maybe to some boards and you know, some projects like that is to drive forward. Maybe some consultancy work as well in that vein, in that in that space. If you had stayed on in politics and if things had gone well for you and let's say the fairy godmother Tishuk arrived and offered you whatever portfolio you would like, was there any particular portfolio you would like to have got your teeth stuck into? Uh, there's only one portfolio would take me back to politics, kicking and screaming. I would be kicking and screaming, but if I got an absolute cast iron guarantee, I uh, would be the senior minister for health. Minister for Health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That would be my dream job, my dream job. If I thought I was 100% guaranteed to be the next senior minister for health, I'd have stayed on. Now, um, obviously, there's a lot of a slip between the cup and the lip and all of those who can't take that chance. But yeah, I thought health, I found health to be just fascinating. And it is so ripe for reform on so many levels that you can make so many changes and make such a difference. Um, you won't change everything, you won't fix everything and all of that, but you can genuinely be very, very productive, I believe. So that would be the, the dream job I would love. Well, Jim, you talk about health. You were a junior minister in the area of older people and mental health. What kind of changes would you point to there that you were able to oversee during your tenure there? Yeah, it's uh, three years this week, actually, mixed since I was appointed uh, Minister of State in, with responsibility for both areas. I suppose at the oldest side, my biggest, um, what I would be proudest of or most the achievement that I did most was uh, I championed very much a move away from nursing homes. Yeah, so I spoke very publicly about moving away from nursing homes and that as a model that I didn't believe I actually announced it that or championed it initially at Nursing Homes Ireland conference, which probably didn't go down very well there. Uh, and I remember some of the media picking up on it at the time. Uh, and it's not just that I said nursing homes aren't where we should have our older people, but I sought out real alternatives to nursing homes and championed and progressed very significantly. Uh, I joined forces with Damien English and the Department of Housing, got to two departments working together for the first time in the history of the state, and basically did a housing options for older people policy with 40 clear actions, set up an implementation group uh, chaired by Leo Kearns, and that work is ongoing to drive forward real change that people can have their own door accommodation that as people get older that they can continue to live maybe not in their own home but in a home with their own front door and supported you know also a statutory home care scheme uh, I started my journey three years ago and did a public consultation on developing a statutory home care scheme where home care would become guaranteed by state and a pilot of that had just been begun pre-COVID and I had brought it from concept to reality in the three years so that's on the older person side then on the on the mental health side, I would have championed very much the whole online space and digital space. Telehealth would have been a real focus and drive for me. 
uh, set up a national phone line which would streamline all the services under one number. So basically about how we access the services that are there would have been what I would have championed in mental health, uh, text crisis text line, a phone line, uh, the whole area of uh, remote uh, you know, telehealth where that you have psychiatry is lacking and you have gaps in the system. You don't have a psychiatrist traveling from Galway down to Kerry for a full day to do one assessment, but it can all be done online and can all be done remotely. Uh, COVID, unfortunately, has proved me to be very right. While I was a, a lone voice championing a lot of this, I got many pilots up and running within the HSC in the whole online space and delivering all aspects of mental health during my time. But it took COVID for it to actually be appreciated and realised and the system was able to continue because we had so many uh, online services available and now they're mushrooming and being multiplied and we opened our first telehub, tele-mental health hub, uh, national hub up in Ross Grey. Uh, there only two weeks ago, uh, the Taoiseach opened it. And just to take you back to the elder people um, element of your portfolio, Jim, again, as you say, and I think a lot of people would share it, and I think it's become more apparent during the pa- pandemic, the, the attempts to move away from nursing homes. But did you find in attempting that, is there vested interests up against that, particularly you're talking about a, a for-profit sector that's there, and the whole fair deal scheme, it's nearly as if that has to be fulfilled because it um, it was brought in by the government. I mean, is there resistance and serious resistance to that idea of moving people out of nursing homes? Yeah, I mean, at the, at the very best, there's, there was pre-COVID lethargy there, you know, at the very best, I think, that uh, in the system. I, I can remember one of my first weeks as Minister of State, I was turned aside on a new nursing home. I was invited to do so. And I turned around to the, to the person, to the developer, and I said, what's going to be new in this nursing home? What's going to be? And, you know, bear my mom was a matron of nursing homes all her life. So I, I've been very familiar with the nursing home sector. And I said, what's going to be new in this nursing home? What's, what, what way are they going now? And uh, he said, oh, we, we'll probably have iPads, Minister. You know, and that was the sum total of innovation that was coming from the nursing home sector. And I, I still to this day find that very, very difficult. You know, pri- we often look to the private sector to be innovative and to really radically change how we do what we do and be transformative. But the nursing home model that we rely on is a clinical model. It's there with 30 years, uh, single rooms off a corridor, you know, and it hasn't changed really or, you know, morphed into anything new over that 30 year period. So um, the system, I think, uh, to be fair, I mean, the, the housing options for older people is a document that not many people took notice of when I launched it, when developed it with Damien English. I think everybody will be talking about it now into the next phase of politics. Uh, and where is it at and the 40 key actions in it and have we made progress on it? And all of a sudden, it is going to become very real. But uh, to be fair to the system, to the department of the HSE, they were you know, very constructive in contributing to that to that model, but I think society as a whole was was slow. I mean, when I hear people talk about the numbers of people who died in nursing homes as a scandal, I mean, there's far, far greater scandals is the numbers of people dying in nursing homes from non-COVID uh, illnesses, such as boredom and, you know, lack of yeah. stimulation and the will to live and lack of interaction with people and, and all of that will never, ever, I mean, COVID wouldn't be in the hape any place. COVID is only a symptom of the malaise that is in the whole institutionalised of putting older people in there, you know. So I think we have to be far more ambitious for older people, and I think we can be. And I think I have laid good groundwork to build on that, and I think society will do that now. One element to it, Jim, and I recall that you championed it as far as I know might have been part of that document in terms of housing for older people. And it's something that I've noticed myself where I'm originally from, the town, and it's like a lot of towns, that effectively the town is emptied out 
and you have in the hinterlands going out for miles, because of the nature of planning, apart from the fact that we're an agricultural country going back so many years, but a lot of it has to do with planning, you have huge numbers of particularly elderly people now. And if there was any way of getting people from all out those outlying areas, bring them into the town in terms of their health, their security, uh, commerce for the town, rejuvenating the place, socialisation, that type of thing. That was something I think that you were uh, championing at one stage. Yeah, and I mean, people, you know, I remember knocking on doors in some election and people say, you're the fellow who wants to take our house as office. You know, that's what people will put <laughs> That's the way it's viewed then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I've and i got that on being on different national radio shows, some texts from, particularly from Dublin and areas like that, will look at it that way, that you're trying to take the big house off them. Not at all. But like down in rural Ireland, where I'm from, you know, I mean, does people live seven, eight, nine kilometres from the nearest streetlight, literally. Uh, and those people live in big old houses that are not very warm and they're rattling around on their own when the family are gone. Uh, they're really not conducive to well-being and to you know good mental or physical health. Whereas many villages have done a great example, but they're very ad hoc and they haven't got the support they need to build housing settlements within the village or within the town. I always quote Kilmele in County Clare as an exceptional example. Ross Carberry out the road from here in West Cork. Nace in County Kildare. There's some wonderful examples of where people developed housing for older people inside in the middle where it's near the GP and near the post office and near the bus stop and near the shop and where they can walk to and from it. Single story accommodation which, you know, um, all, like simple things like having plug sockets up in the middle of the wall as opposed to down at the bottom where you have to stoop down fireplaces that are easy to clean out. There's very simple steps that can be made to allow people to continue to live independently. There is an all-merciful amount of people living inside nursing homes that are living, it was inverted commas, I used the word living, existing in nursing homes that really don't need to be there and shouldn't be there. You know, and that is the reality. And if they were, you know, it was just left too late to intervene. And then the only available option or suitable option was the nursing home. But if they had moved to a more supported type living accommodation earlier on, more proactively, they may never have had to go into a nursing home. Yeah, Jim, and just then, just switching to, to the, the, the mental health element of your brief. No, you go back, Vision for Change. I even remember it, 2006, much fanfare. This was going to be the future. Mental health was going to be transformed. I think it's fair to say it still remains, as it was described a long time ago, the Cinderella of the health services. Vision for change was not fulfilled. It was not a success. Taking into account there is far more awareness at every level of mental health today. But have we any reason to believe that this new plan sharing the vision that I think you launched there a few weeks ago, that that's going to make any kind of a serious difference? Yeah, I think it is a very positive document. I have no longer any skin in the game. Uh, I hope to be, you know, um, not in this position in, in two days' time or whatever. So I, I, I can speak honestly to you, Mick, you know, that I, I'm not saying this for the sake of it. I don't have to defend any position. Uh, really, I mean, we intertwine our words mental health and mental illness. But reality, we nearly always talk about mental illness. We always talk about CAMs. We always talk about psychiatry. We always talk about gaps in the market. We always talk about, you know, CAMs, beds and people in adult, children and adult placements. That's a very niche market. It's a specialist part of mental illness. Uh, we really need to talk much more about mental health and talk about people's well-being and talk about more proactive intervention early on to keep people better because it is a, a, a situation or that evolves and that escalates. So if you have initial anxiety as a young person or as an adult, it can turn in, if it's untreated and undealt with and not faced up to, it can 
and will oftentimes develop into much more, you know, into psychosis and things like that and go down the, the mental illness line. So we need to kind of pull back our focus, our relentless focus on waiting lists and interventions. At, and of course, you have vested interests as well up at that level, at mental illness level. You have some very, you know, high paid people who are have it's in their interest to make sure that they that is support and i think the previous vision was to be honest and people on it told me this that it was a case of well we want six of them and four and we want to be in it as well and we want our discipline recognized and we want you know our discipline to be representative on every team and we want to make sure that there's so many of us there as well so it was it was at that kind of you know giddy times of 2005 and four five and six where there was loads of money and there was a prescriptive model of every 100,000 people should have so many psychologists, so many psychiatrists, so many social workers, so many this, so many that, so many the other. And then if you didn't meet that, well, it was a failure. This has moved away from that model of prescription. And it's much more about let's look at the outcomes. Let's look at what we're getting for the, the billion euro we are putting into mental health. And people use a yardstick about the Cinderella of mental health and about the, the amount of money we spend. But like in real terms, we could double the budget tomorrow. But will we get outcomes now with the new vision? Yes, it's going to be all about outcomes. And that's how we're going to measure what we do, as opposed to measuring it by the amount of money we spend on it. Some people are saying it should be 12% of the health budget. Well, I mean, that doesn't give you any outcome. That just gives you a massive input. Uh, so you could double the salary of every practitioner and you would double the input but you're not going to get an, a different output. I'm not suggesting that anybody's looking for their salary to be doubled or anything like that, but I'm saying that it's the wrong yardstick to use. The yardstick you should use is what are we achieving for how we do what we do, you know, and it's very much focused on outcomes, the new vision, and it's also focused on early intervention, prevention, and promotion of mental well-being, earlier awareness of it, and then very much, like you say, what did we do about it over the last three years? I said on day one, I'm not going to spend the rest of my time saying we can't recruit enough psychiatrists because we just can't. And what I did was brought in the whole telehealth where you can deliver psychiatry online. So you could have one person in a hub delivering psychiatry to six or seven different accident and emergency sites. You know, there are so many different ways of better doing what we do, how we do what we do and being more proactive. And that's the type of person I am is a business person, entrepreneurial and looking at better ways of doing things as opposed to just moaning about the amount of money we're putting into it. Jim, thanks very much for joining us today. And I would just like to say good luck in the future. Um, I have to say myself, I thought you did make a contribution while you were there. Um, and sometimes it would seem in the arena, in the doll, it may be perhaps those who shout the loudest and who have a particular way of coming across. But then, uh, irrespective of the cynicism, I think, that creeps in, there are those who are quietly efficient. And I would suggest, and I can say it now because you're getting out of the game, that you would definitely have fallen into the latter category. Jim, thanks very much and good luck to the future. Pleasure, Mick. Thank you for having me on your podcast. That's it for today, folks. I'd just like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can get us on the usual platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iCloud. You can contact me at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the old Twitter machine at at mickcliff. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.